Welcome to Innovations of Health, a podcast that gives you the latest in healthcare trends and news. We'll be sharing advances in digital technology and breakthroughs in healthcare that eases people's way and provides a better healthcare future for all. Great. Well, it's great to be here with uh, everyone today. Uh, as you know, I'm Rod Hockman. I'm the President and CEO at uh, Providence. But we've got a, a great guest and a great discussion, which is so timely for today. Uh, Dr. Jim Heath, who's the uh, uh, CEO and President of the Institutes for Systems Biology, is with us. Uh, we have some exciting things to talk about. A lot of you have seen the headlines about the research that's been done uh, at ISB in conjunction with a whole bunch of other clinicians out there. But Jim, it's, it's great to see you. Great to be here. Hopefully, this will be uh, one of our last times we have to do all this stuff virtually. I am excited about doing one of these in person. I almost forgot what it's like. <laughs> but a little bit first, just for the audience, a little bit to uh, understand what is ISB and the Institutes for Systems Biology? I know you and I both are well acquainted with that, but just for the audience, just to give them some idea of what is the work and a little bit, bit of the background. Sure. So the ISB, the Institute for Systems Biology, um, it's, we've been around for about 21 years or so. Um, I think the, maybe even 22 this year, um, 2020 was our 20th anniversary that we didn't quite get to celebrate because of the pandemic. Um, so we're a nonprofit research institute, um, really pursuing challenging problems in human health and using the tools of systems biology. And, and what that means is that we treat uh, a human condition or a disease from all levels, um, from genetic all the way up to the symptoms a patient's feeling and try to do it on a sufficient number of patients to really capture a holistic picture of the disease. And um, as you know, of course, we are affiliated with the Providence um, Healthcare Network. And that's been a major resource for us in terms of being able to do translational science in fields of, you know, oncology. And of course, we'll talk about COVID and long COVID today, but uh, uh, MS, a, a host of different um, afflictions. Jim, I've been so impressed by, you know, the number of scientists you have, the kind of work they're doing, and also kind of looking at how technology has changed research. And I know at ISB, you know, this, this intersection between computational science and bench science, I think is, you know, ISB is such a great example of that. And it's, it's made such a difference. Well, something that's happened over the past, I would say, decade, but really over the past five years, is that the tools of biology, um, people always thought of biology as complex, it is complex, but it was also fraught with the fact that it was highly heterogeneous. And, you know, you're, you're looking at, you're trying to, to, to pull out a, a consistent picture when your view is only of a heterogeneous um, individual, a heterogeneous disease. But the, the tools of biology have advanced so that we can now begin resolving that heterogeneity. Um, and so, in fact, I would say, you know, the most exotic tools that we use, at least to lay people, are to look at, you know, up to, say, 100,000 measurements from single cells and do lots of single cells out of individual patients. Um, 
that's almost become commodities over the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, and the real challenge now, I think, that we're all facing is how do we computationally integrate those views that are so rich and so deep to give us a, a more comprehensive picture of, of human disease? Well, it, it seems to me, Jim, just you know, kind of speaking maybe for our audience and whatnot, that we're on the cusp or we're really in the middle of redefining how we characterize different diseases and so much of that work. And maybe, you know, maybe for the for the audience a little bit explaining what that means. And, you know, I think the public has gotten some of that, you know, when they see um, all the different genomic tests that are done for you, whether you have breast cancer or something else. But maybe just a, a little bit from your perspective in terms of what you do about how dramatically you think it's going to change the way we look at different diseases and cancer, infectious disease, and neurologic disease? Well, I think the change will happen at many levels. So as our measurements and our ability to understand those measurements has increased, um, you know, we're going to be able, we're going to be detecting diseases at a very early stage. We're going to be see those earliest transitions to disease between health and disease. And in fact, I mean, this long COVID study is a illustration of that. Um, and you know what that means is that the farther back you can go in time, the more straightforward it is to imagine how to rectify, how to correct the how to correct the disease. And those rectifications are not you know, may not be as serious, like you think about cancer, um, you catch cancer in the late stage disease, that's that's a tough treatment for, for everybody involved. The earlier you catch it, the the more manageable and, and tolerated and, you know, simple that treatment can be. So I think there's a real sea change coming through these types of tools and how that's interfacing back into the clinic. And also just, I think, also, depending on how you characterize what you've got, what's the appropriate treatment for that? Because today, you know, and I think we've gotten a little bit better, but, you know, we kind of almost hit everything with a sledgehammer and trying to understand what someone's prognosis is or, you know, what their course is likely to be given the things that you're looking at, Jim. Is that, that's an also a real big benefit. That's true. And and when you look at some of the, you know, early stage transitions to disease, you're not thinking about hitting it with a sledgehammer. You may be thinking about dietary changes um, or more subtle changes because the, the actual transition to disease are relatively subtle and, and, you know, potentially, now this is, you know, looking into the future, but potentially easier to reverse. Because the, the markers that we use today, by the time we see the proverbial spot or lump on the x-ray or the lesion, that in a lot of ways, you know, biologically is pretty late stage, right? Oh, it's, it's actually very late stage. That's right. Um, and, and I think there's, you know, there's tools that are emerging. There's one big trial going on throughout the Providence system of uh, this GRAIL tool that, that I think folks have heard about. But what that does is looking for uh, genetic signatures of disease that are in the blood. And so, you know, and, and with the revolution and turning, so one thing that has happened in biology, 
whether you're looking at proteins, whether you're looking at genes or what have you, everything's being converted into a sequencing. And, and what that means, into a sequencing measurement, what that means is that not only are you looking at genes, but you can actually use pieces of genes as barcodes for all the other information. Right. And it's, it's a very subtle effect, but very powerful. And that allows you to, uh, the sensitivity is, is staggering of, of what's possible. So let's, let's pivot. So with all the things that ISB was doing, uh, now two plus years into a uh, global pandemic, um, uh, you really put the tools that ISB has to work on COVID and particularly, which, which has taken national attention, is particularly around the characteristics and the elements in long COVID. But Jim, let me, let me let you jump in and explain the work that you've done and what its significance is. Sure. Well, really early in the pandemic, I think it was March of 2020 when it was just sort of blossoming here in Seattle, we launched a study with our colleagues at the uh, Swedish uh, Medical Center here, a branch of Providence. And, um, and we actually did this without any funding at all at the time. Um, but then we ended up being able to bring in significant amount of funding. But our goal was to follow patients from initial diagnosis out through recovery and beyond as best we could. Um, and we did that through collecting basically their blood and nasal swabs, the kind of things that you would expect to collect in a, in a, in a study. Um, but out of that, those, those biospecimens, we extracted a staggering amount of information. Um, and th that included measurements of autoantibodies, the antibodies patients develop against the virus. It included their whole genome. All this single cell analysis I talked about, a thousand metabolites, a thousand proteins, on and on and on. Um, and so we, in late 2020, we published a, a long paper on, in cell also, on what we sort of viewed as, as the major biological effects that happen when patients were at the peak of acute disease. Um, but we, still had those patients coming back to give blood after they had recovered. And when we initially designed the study, I don't think anyone was thinking about long COVID. And in retrospect, I don't think we're real surprised that it exists, but we were kind of surprised at the time <laughs> when we found that so many patients were developing chronic um, conditions uh, following acute disease. And so, in fact, we actually hadn't even really thought about collecting kind of long COVID symptoms that began to emerge. And so we went to the cohort of patients that we had been looking at, and we were able to, by questioning the patients and by going back and looking at their electronic health records, find out how many of our patients actually had long COVID-like symptoms. And, and technically that means that they still have some lingering effects that weren't there before the disease about a month out, but we're looking not much longer, two to three months out, okay? Um, and, um, and what we found was, you know, very striking. Um, and and, and I, the, 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 the short of it is that we found that actually if we measured certain things at initial diagnosis, we could really identify which patients were at highest risk uh, 
of certain long COVID symptoms. And I think that's, that's actually pretty interesting because it, it means, number one, we're seeing the beginning of long COVID back at the time when the patients are initially diagnosed with COVID-19. It's kind of like early detection of cancer. Mm-hmm. It, it's a li- it's ultimately, it's a little easier to assign or to think about treatments when you capture it so early. Um, and because those early factors that we see that anticipate long COVID, we can't prove yet that they cause it, but they have that flavor of causative agents. They, 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 they seem like maybe they, they, they might be the, the causal reasons. Jim, what were you seeing in terms of when you looked at your whole cohort, what percentage of them uh, were long COVID patients? You know, so if, if you look at 100 folks, what, what, are, what are we talking about? Um, it's going to depend a little bit on the severity of, that those patients experienced for disease. Um, but I would say, you know, maybe 30 to 40 percent, um, a little more if it's very serious disease, maybe a little less if it's if it's mild disease, but it's it, mild disease patients get long COVID as well. Um, so it's it's a big number, you know, it's it's very significant. It's one of the reasons why I think, you know, we, we, we try to push hard on people to get vaccinated is uh, this is not a, um, you know, um, an insignificant event. And when we talk about long COVID, what was the predominance of the symptoms and the presentations in some of the long COVID patients? Well, the most common is fatigue. Um, and then there's a bunch of things that kind of go along with that, but are not quite the same, like inability to exercise. Um, There were lingering respiratory, what we called respiratory viral effects, which is basically feeling like you still got the flu long after you recovered. Um, Cough, people um, having sputum coming up out of their lungs. There were neurological effects were a step down in frequency, but still pretty common. And then about 10% of our patients total patients, not just the long COVID ones, um, had uh, gastrointestinal uh, issues. Some other long COVID symptoms that we saw, but probably didn't capture the in a statistically significant way were things like hair loss or cardiac issues. Right. And what were some of the factors that, <clears throat> maybe not necessarily causal, that you were finding in the long COVID patients? Maybe for the audience, just to explain, uh, you know, when you and I talk about autoantibodies, we kind of know what we're talking about, but maybe for everyone else, just to, to just kind of hear, what, what were you actually finding? Well, we found four factors that anticipate or place patients at higher risk. Two of them were viral signatures one that are in the blood, not not nasal swab. So one is the actual SARS-CoV-2 virus that the mRNA, the, the molecular signature of that virus in the blood, if it's in the, in the nasal swab, that can anticipate loss of taste and smell. But for the other COVID symptoms like fatigue, et cetera, uh, in the blood. We saw another virus called Epstein-Barr virus. Many people associate that with mononucleosis, um, that sort of kissing teenagers disease. Um, We saw that get reactivated 
right at diagnosis, you can see the DNA from that virus in the blood. It goes away very quickly, but it's there. Um, type 2 diabetes was a risk factor, probably because we had enough type 2 diabetes patients in our cohorts to be able to say that this is statistically significant. Doesn't mean there aren't other comorbidities. Um, but the most important risk factor, as you alluded to, is autoantibodies. So I think most people now are familiar with the fact that once you're vaccinated or once you've had COVID-19, your body naturally develops antibodies against the virus, and that's protection against future infection. Um, and of course, we know that that protection varies somewhat depending on the strain of the virus, but nevertheless, it is some protection, which is why vaccinating and boosting is so important. Um, but autoantibodies, almost the same kind of molecule, in fact, they are the same kind of molecule, but they're directed against proteins that are in your body. Um, and now we only look for, you could in principle have autoantibodies against any one of the 100,000 proteins your body makes. We looked only at about a half a dozen of those proteins, but with a good reason. Uh, one of them was a protein against interferon alpha 2, which is an important protein in sort of a signaling pathway uh, uh, that, 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 your, that your immune system will, will have triggered in response to the virus. Um, and that, that was from literature precedence. There was a lot of work showing that interferon alpha 2 antibodies were somehow interfering with the patient's uh, response to, to COVID-19. We also found they related to, to long COVID. The other set of autoantibodies, and this is really interesting, were ones that are most often seen in patients with systemic lupus erythematosus, or lupus. Um, and we also found other immunological signatures that connected long COVID to lupus. Uh, and so, um, and that, you know, many of these findings do suggest treatments. Yeah, because that, that was going to be my follow on, uh, Jim, you know, just based on what you and your colleagues have discovered. Uh, would we treat, you know, if we had this information early on, would we treat that group of folks with COVID differently and, you know, maybe speculate on what we might do early on to help? Well, the these two viral signatures that we see, the EBV and the SARS-CoV-2 virus in the blood, right at diagnosis. Um, so what those two are suggesting different things, but they're suggesting similar treatments. Um, they're suggesting that you give antivirals right at as early as possible in the disease course. We know that can help patients that are, um, as they go through acute disease, but it seems also there's gonna be a benefit in terms of long COVID. I think the rationale is similar to um, why you get vaccinated and boosted. Just right. keep those virus levels low. Um, EBV, I would say is a little different than SARS-CoV-2 because it's a DNA virus. So it's not necessarily the same antiviral that one would use. Um, and you're probably not gonna to wanna to use it on any, everybody. Um, I think these new two new antivirals, one from Pfizer, one from Merck, that are being tested, probably you can just observe. And then based on what we find over the next few months, design what would be the most appropriate use of those for long COVID. Um, and so I think that's an, 
easy thing to think about, and there's pretty much universal agreement that that should be done. Um, we also found in patients that were suffering from what we called respiratory viral pask or fatigue and flu and things like this, that they had repressed levels of cortisol. Um, and that's turns out that's actually associated with something that's known called Addison syndrome. And to treat Addison syndrome, which actually has a lot of similar symptoms that long COVID does, um, one does cortisol replacement therapy. So that's something that should probably be tried. Yep. And finally, this connection with lupus suggests that maybe you want to look at the patients that have lupus and have effectively responded to whatever treatments are out there and begin thinking about those as, as candidates. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, it's fascinating to think about how to treat this disease uh, differently and the concept of viral load, all, all of the above. What, what else, Jim, this opens up a whole uh, discussion around a whole bunch of other chronic illness diseases that, that are out there yeah. that we've talked a lot about in the past. You know, uh, a lot of folks who have chronic fatigue syndrome that have been really frustrated, sometimes associated with Epstein-Barr or not. Uh, folks who have disorders like fibromyalgia and fatigue, that this might give us some clues into understanding those patients a lot better. That's right. In fact, um, you know, before the pandemic, we were in the middle of designing a study to look at post-acute Lyme syndrome, which, right. you know, looks a lot like long COVID. Um, from what we've learned during this study, I would go back and design that study completely differently. And just for the, for the audience, you know, Lyme disease, obviously, you know, we both know, rickettsial disorder coming from ticks, um, used to, you know, is, is almost basically endemic in the whole country now, but causes, you know, some some really challenging long-term symptoms that uh, sound a lot like what we're talking about between fatigue, cardiac symptoms, neurologic symptoms, et cetera. Yeah, and I think, you know, we, we looked for, there's a host of things one could look for based on what we've learned. Um, I would certainly look for reactivation of latent viruses. Um, EBV is one candidate. There's other candidates that one might look for. I think autoantibodies, which were the most important anticipator of long COVID, I would for sure look for those there. Now, a lot of physicians out there are probably thinking there's a lot of long COVID, but when we measure autoantibodies in patients, maybe only two to 3% of patients have autoantibodies. And that's because when you send a sample out to say a lab core for autoantibodies, they're gonna come back positive if that patient is like four standard deviations above baseline. Um, and, and the reason why they do that is if you're two standard deviations above baseline, which is you have them, but they're not high, um, they're gonna be subclinical. There's nothing, there's no manifestation, there's no symptoms that, are, that, that, that evolve from such low levels of antibodies, but they do put you at risk of long COVID, whether they're high or low. Higher is worse for sure, but 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 um, but but low levels are also important. Uh, Jim, I see we've got a question in the audience. If I can, my vision's good enough to read. Uh, talking about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, something that can be associated. Can it be associated with COVID? What's the correlation? 
Well, I'm so glad that one of the two of us is an MD and can translate. <laughs> so, uh, orthostatic hypertension, you know, basically getting to standing position, you know, and, and, and uh, losing your blood pressure out. Um, uh, associated oftentimes with a lot of different things from hypovolemia to, you know, a bunch of other conditions. Uh, and, you know, with associated tachycardia, which is normal. I, I per se, I hadn't heard about that with COVID, but I'm not surprised that it could be. We do see, you know, patients reporting dizziness and things like this, which I think would be a, a possible manifestation of this. Um, one thing that we found is that I think is interesting and makes sense, but I don't think is broadly appreciated, is that for these four PASC factors that we found, and there was another one we found that's not, you don't see it at diagnosis, you see it a little bit later on that associates the GI PASC. Uh, and PASC, I, I use this term PASC, that's post-acute sequela from COVID-19, that's long COVID. PASC yeah. is short, okay? so. Um, each of these PASC factors associated with different symptoms. And which I think makes complete sense, these viral factors associated with neurological PASC. And, you know, there's a, a recent paper uh, that came out almost coincident with ours in science showing that EBV associates with um, MS. And so there long been suspected these types of connections. We're probably just seeing more of them. Um, these autoantibodies, by and large, associate with fatigue and respiratory viral type 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 phenomena. And so this, um, I don't know where dizzy, dizziness is going to come in our, 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 our post-orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, but maybe somewhere in between. Jim, have we seen any difference with all the different variants that have been out there? Has the research shown any difference between the alpha, delta, omicron groups in terms of their manifestations, how much long COVID or any of the, you know, the research that you've done, does it distinguish between any of these groups? Um, we don't know. There's been some, it's pretty early to say for omicron. Um, you know, in one month, we'll at least have some statistics on um, if there's long COVID. I'm sure there's going to be some, but Omicron is very different from the earlier variants. Um, there have been some studies that say that long COVID symptoms vary a little bit with these different strains. But, you know, those studies need to be corrected for the demographics, for et cetera. So, there you really need big numbers to be able to understand how the different strains of the virus are impacting patients and, and chronic conditions that evolve. Um, you know, there's a, a massive national study going on and, and, and ISB and, and myself, we're leading the Pacific Northwest component of that. And that's supposed to capture, you know, we studied in, the, in our long COVID paper, maybe three, 400 patients. This, um, this national study is going to look at 17,000. And that's really what you need to begin answering those questions. And then, you know, the, the, the other thing that comes up, is there anything unique about people that get COVID twice? You know, that, that you know, and again, I think this is probably something that will come out in larger studies. But uh, is there anything about unique immunologically well, about those individuals? Well, we found 
And I think this was one of the, you know, really marquee findings in our paper is that the more autoantibodies you have, the fewer protective antibodies against the virus you develop, which goes to show you that these autoantibodies actually do have a functional role in your immune response. And so all things being equal, patients with higher levels of autoantibodies are more likely to be susceptible to breakthrough infections. Now, I think probably you can, Omicron is, is, um, is different enough that, you know, that, that, that effect of autoantibodies may be washed out a little bit because so many people get infected with Omicron that have had it before. But the more, the, the, the previous variants, I would say you'd probably, you'd probably detect the, the, the presence of autoantibodies as being a factor. Right. Right. And then I think, you know, the, the other correlation, any, you know, you saw a correlation with uh, uh, type 2 diabetes. Any correlation with uh, obesity? We didn't really see, you know, we looked at body mass index relationships and stuff like that. It didn't pop out. Yep. Um, could be there in a larger study, but it's not, um, it's not something. It's not a major effect. And age, any any clues there in terms of, of, of what you were seeing? No, we saw that, um, uh, I think we saw that females were more likely to have long COVID than males. Um, there was, you know, some age effects for certain symptoms. Um, and it's hard to really separate that from disease severity. Uh, so, and, uh, I probably it probably ages there but it's a it's a, it's a it's less of a signal the the female to male ratio was was pretty resolvable yeah so what's what's next jim you know i think everyone's uh you know hanging on what happens next and whatnot uh from your perspective both uh from a research scientific and just the prognostication what do you think we have in store for us and what should the next research be well, so there's two things that we're thinking about. Um, one, and you know, this goes back to some of what we talked about uh, earlier, is that with these chronic conditions, you know, patients, it's very frustrating for patients. Uh, they, they come in, they complain of, you know, various symptoms, and they're ill-defined enough that the physician oftentimes can't really do much other than say, you know, take two aspirin, call me in the morning. And, um, and what we did in this paper is begin to design molecular markers of those symptoms so that you can really say that something's wrong with these patients. And like we found markers of disrupted circadian rhythms and, and the patients with neurological long COVID and, and then this cortisol, uh, uh, depletion that we found in patients with, with respiratory viral, I'm sure there's others. I think that's a really important step toward defining. It's hard to treat something if you haven't defined it. So, so I think that's important. Um, this connection to lupus, lupus is sort of vaguely treated as well. I mean, it's, 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 it's a challenging thing to treat, but I think we have maybe the ability to really look and see how these autoantibodies are disrupting normal immunological responses. And that's something that we're trying to do. And I think maybe one can uncover 
uh, targetable opportunities there that would you know be very meaningful for patients. Um, and finally, going back to you know issues of other long chronic diseases like chemo brain or post acute Lyme or things like this. Um, I think the study we did provides a model for trying to understand those types of conditions. And, you know, we're very excited about doing that kind of thing. That, that seems so relevant. And, you know, I think coming out of COVID, whether it's, you know, the advancements in vaccine therapy and understanding mRNA or the work that you've done really to understand the genesis of what happens with a viral infection, what are the things that you look at? The, to a much finer degree than we've we've ever been able to look at before, uh, really gives us some kind of hope for the future as we go as we go forward. It does, and you know, part of there's two parts to this. One part of the sort of high level of resolution we had on these um, on long COVID was because of this tool set that I talked about at the beginning. Okay, it's just staggering what can be done, and even during the course of the pandemic we were able to drop the cost of some of these tools by a factor of fivefold, um, which otherwise we couldn't have applied them as broadly as we did. The second is that we had patients, patients that were willing to participate and come back multiple times to give their blood and their time um, to allow us to, to do these findings. That's a really big deal. And, um, and I can't be, I, I could not be more grateful than I am to the, to the patients from both our Providence cohort as well as uh, UW, we got some from from University of Washington as well. That gave of their time and their and their blood to help make these these types of studies possible. Because I think, from you know a, a research standpoint, I think this is a tremendous example of the collaboration between the bench and the the bedside in terms of in in almost real time as it as it's going on. And I think that the benefits, as you're saying, of being able to look longitudinally at a population and them being willing to give their blood samples and everything else really opens up a whole window onto how we look at disease. Absolutely. And, you know, if I had been able to do make a wish on the study we did, I'd have asked that we'd had a blood sample before they got COVID. <laughs> so... And I think that's true for any disease you're going to look at, whether it's cancer or, or, or COVID or what have you, um, being able to understand those very earliest transitions. And the fact that we see these PASC factors right at diagnosis, that's why we can come up with hypotheses for how to treat long COVID. If we actually look at them when those symptoms appear, it's a mess. Yeah. You actually have to go back and look at that early time point. And... Um, and, you know, if, if there's something that the physicians or the patients that are watching this, you know, as a take home message, it's you really want to capture that earliest stage because that's where you get the, the strongest clues on how to on how to you know prevent the later stage. You know, at, at some basis, uh, Jim, we want to we want to almost want a baseline on everyone. Right. Uh, yes. You know, as research, as some of this research really matures understanding what your, you know, your normal state is, is, is really helpful. You know, probably, I don't know how early on, whether it's your cord blood sample or somewhere along the way, but you know, that this whole, you know, as we're able to delineate what the differences are and the progressions are, that's going to get more and more relevant to understand where you started from. That's right. And, 
you know, also tech is going to make that kind of thing easier because, um, you know, things like wearables, it's amazing what you can learn in a wearable now. You know, I think people are maybe familiar with Fitbits, but that's like old tech compared to the kind of things people can, can do now for, you know, really pennies on the dollar. And, um, and that's, that provides a pretty powerful baseline. It's not quite the sort of molecular detail you get from blood, but it's, it's pretty impressive. Um, and, and I think it's also an equally useful tool for looking at those earliest, for establishing a healthy baseline. Because I think as we look at COVID, right, this confluence of bringing lots of data points together, I think it's something that you've always been looking at it at ISB, that what seems at first like fog all of a sudden turns into something that's a little bit different. You see, you start to make precise conclusions, but it does take a mass of data sometimes to kind of get there. It does. And, um, you know, and I would say that, you know, really right now, I think we're we're a computational place um, in, in addition to these kind of measurements, we're limited computationally. We, you know, when we put together this paper on long COVID, there's no way we could cover the data that we collected. We had to really parse through it and identify what we thought was most clinically actionable, most relevant. But the, um, but the, uh, and partly that's because our computational tools just aren't up to the task. Um, it's still, they've, they've been outpaced by the measurements. And so we're going to have to do some computational catch up over the next, uh, you know, few years. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting and, you know, it's, it's fascinating to see what are the implications for as we do research, you know, also the collaboration uh, amongst different researchers, which I think has also been pretty extensive through COVID. I mean, in comments on... Where do you think that future is going, Jim? That's been, um, it's been phenomenal for us and we don't want to go back. So if you um, look at the authorship list in our paper, you know, for sure we've got lots of ISB people and people from Providence, but we, we have the world B cell expert um, from Stanford, the world T cell experts from Stanford and the Hutch. We've got the world uh, and and from uh, UCSF, we've got the world natural killer cell expert from UCSF, um, and uh, some you know great immunology expertise from uh, other parts of the globe. So that's been something that has helped us tremendously, and and it's a culture that is continuing. It's been a big boon from from this pandemic. You know, there, everything has a silver lining, and this is one of them. And that's been the the sort of democratization of of skill sets into you know solving a problem, right? And to get you know to kind of extend that one expert that's sitting in a lab somewhere, and be able to virtually bring them into the discussion, into the collaboration, anywhere in the world is is pretty phenomenal. Absolutely, you know I think it's helped that none of us have traveled. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's there's something to that. I mean, I think I think we'll be we'll be thinking about all the lessons learned for a long time, but but the bright spot I think for all of us involved in research and advancement in science is that there's a lot of optimism about what can be done next. What new tools have we been able to use? How do we combine all of this into making sense? 
that uh, there's been a real explosion, even just the, the whole development of the vaccine itself and the other science around it. You know, uh, if we separate all the political stuff as people in science and medicine do, we're pretty excited about what the future can be. Is that an assessment, Jim? I, I think so, yeah. Um, and, you know, I would say that like our, the data sets that we've collected here, you know, throughout this pandemic, we've been making them universally available to like, you know, there's there's a group at, at Rockefeller who's done phenomenal work on uh, really parsing through autoantibodies and genetics associated with that. That's all been collaborations with us and with many other groups um, because we've been, you know, uh, 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 giving them our expertise and our data sets and in and, 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 and very efficient ways. And I think that's that kind of sharing, um, which science, you know, I, I was hoping, one would hope, for example, that something like a pandemic like COVID would actually bring the country together. It didn't quite work out that way, but it did bring science together. And it made science much, much more effective. And I think it made the, the, the clinical science much more effective. And I think it's a, it's a reasonable model to build upon. Absolutely. And I think as we as we go forward, this has been just a great, I think we could go on forever, but I, I think we've, we've covered a lot of the ground and it's so exciting to see all of the interest and the work that you've done, more to come as we, as we go forward. And uh, great work at ISB, but also I think the sine qua non has been just extensive uh, collaboration that we've seen, you know, with scientists all around the world. Uh, and, uh, you know, makes us think that uh, some of the things that we uh, could conquer as we go forward. So Jim, thanks so much. I, we could go on for a long time, but it's, it's always great to be with you. All right, well, I hope to see you soon in person and uh, thank you as well, Rod, take care. Right. Thank you for joining us today on Innovations of Health from Providence. We look forward to continuing this important discussion on the latest in healthcare trends and news in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to future podcasts on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram. You can find us under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening.